All my life I thought there would just be one side of war, just the bad side. Some say that despite the bad side, there could be a good side. The more experienced guys in my unit say that there is an unspoken of third side. I had a feeling I was about to learn what that third side was. Through early morning, Ferg I see combat tanks older than me. Welcome to the 1024th Armored Division said Master Sergeant Ferguson with a lot of pride in his voice. From your combat record, you'll be a valuable asset to our team. I was told this was the place to be, I replied. Let me give you a quick tour. He led me into a hangar the size of a stadium. This is our repair building. We bring in whatever we can get our hands on and make it into a serviceable fighting machine. I glared in disgust at the tanks they were working on. These are old models, almost antiques. They're ugly, too. I was told you guys have the best of the best. I must have lost my southern accent somewhere along the way. Don't let what you see on the outside fool you. I've seen these models used for freaking target practice. They're slow and jerky, and you have to move the whole tank just to aim. Yes, that's all true. We looked at the new ones with all the high-tech gadgets. We decided on the old ones because they work like you expect them to all the time. No computer viruses, no radar jamming, no fancy transmission gears to break down. You drive the tank, you aim, you fire. Simple as that. They're reusable, too. They're hit by enemy fire, they just spin around really fast. Just one person needs to control everything. No committee meetings during battle. We did incorporate energy shields into these babies, though. Makes your chances of returning alive much higher. I had my doubts. Sure, these old tanks would just spin around real fast if you got hit. But certainly, with all the additions they're putting on here so you can move in reverse... I was quite sure that they could no longer handle spinning and would just be destroyed once they were shot. So what do they fire? By leaving out all the high-tech stuff, we were able to put in a dual-shot ricochet cannon with auto-reload. What good is a bouncing bomb? The enemies have high-speed turning capability and guided missiles. They have Series 7800 combat computers in each one that can turn even a novice into an expert. Yeah, but it only takes one bomb each to turn them into high-tech rubble. But they'll see these bombs coming from miles away. That's a negatory, soldier. They put so much technical crap in those tanks that they didn't have enough room for long-range sensors. Sure, they may have guided missiles, but they're short-range, and they're easy enough to dodge. They need to fly drone saucers overhead constantly for recon. That's one thing I'll tell you right now. Shoot those saucers down, and you'll last longer. I heard a siren in the distance. What's that siren mean? It's the early warning system. Pick a tank and show us what you got. But if you so much as scratch the paint job, you spend all your weekends playing Karatika. Could have sworn it's supposed to be pronounced Karatika, but no matter. Master Sergeant Ferguson must have something else going on because he grabbed a microphone, then went straight into the bathroom and started babbling about something called Scuzzerside. I was advised to just leave him alone, let him do what he has to do. Well, I guess that's the Scuzzy side of war. But Scuzzy side is painless. But that's another podcast So when you're done with this one, check it out But for right now, here's music for this one Ah, so it's that time again, episode number seven of the Atari 7800 Home Brew Podcast. And thank you all for downloading, streaming, whatever. I don't know how all you uh, listen to this, but whatever you do, thank you. And of course, this is your usual host. This is Sean speaking. And uh, well, kind of happy to say it hasn't been an eventful two weeks since the last podcast. So hey, nothing terrible happened to me. Nothing amazing happened either just kind of life itself what else can i say oh i take it back yeah nothing terrible happened yeah i think i fried my mateos cart because suddenly it just produces a black screen on my 7800 no matter which um slot i select i guess i should say i think it was probably my fault but uh thankfully juan mateos is uh, working with me to help figure it all out uh, he actually sent out a replacement that i'll hopefully have soon I think it was probably my fault, so I probably owe him some money. 
But uh, yeah, but hey, you know what? Life continues. Uh, Oh, I know some exciting news. This podcast now has a Zazzle store. And right now, the only thing that's available on there is uh, a sticker, really. So if you want to buy some Atari 7800 homebrew podcast stickers, you could go to Zazzle.com. That's spelled Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash homebrew 78. I think it's like $5 for a sheet of stickers. Uh, They're not quite bumper sticker size, but they're kind of sort of like that as far as I know. Um, I have not yet received my own personal batch that I ordered. So, um, so of course, uh, I will let everybody know if anything is different from what I think it is. But, oh, you know what? Speaking of which, if you are going to Midwest Gaming Classic happening the weekend of April 8th, I'm going to have a little stash of these things, so you can come by the Pie Factory podcast table, which will actually be representing both Pie Factory podcast and this podcast. Oh, and speaking of which, we will be having Atari 7800 homebrews available to try out, including some that, as of the release of this episode, are not yet available, such as Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest and I believe Super Circus Atari, we will have those available to test as well. We got the approval from Bob DiCrescenzo to basically let people preview these things. Um, if I get my Mateos cart up and running before Midwest Gaming Classic, then we will be running Bentley Bears Crystal Quest and any other ROMs we're allowed to preview off of an actual 7800. And if not, then we will have an emulator up and running. And what's also cool is, hey, if, you, if you've been thinking about um, the Ed Ladin controllers, well, I'm going to have my Ed Ladin Supreme 78 out for these demonstrations. And also an Uber Arcade joystick, and I do believe that they finally finished production on those. So I think by now, if you haven't gotten an Uber Arcade, well, unfortunately, it's too late. And those are really nice joysticks. They're gorgeous, too, I have to say. But um, anyway, we will be at Midwest Gaming Classic All I know is somewhere near the top of the stairs, but I will be at Midwest Gaming Classic on April 8th and April 9th, and I'll be happy to uh, say hi to people, chat with people if you so desire. We will have uh, some stuff to give away. But other than that, it's been uh, kind of a mellow fortnight for me. My arm is still a little bit achy from the bike wipeout I had about a month ago, had the doctor look at it and they've, they confirm it's nothing serious. It's just maybe it may be a sprain if anything like that, but it's getting little by little better every day. And, uh, Oh, and actually there is some Atari stuff for me that I just kind of have to uh, let out here for the past maybe year. I've really been kind of digging the idea of having a Sears video arcade console, a six switch, so I placed a bid on a fairly low price, what I thought was a heavy sixer uh, telegames unit, but it turned out it was a light sixer. I, I won the auction. It came. It was a light sixer. It's just the way the, the picture looked. But you know what? I still like this thing. And one of the reasons it was fairly cheap was the description says, I have no way to test this unit, which is very plausible considering I don't believe the owner had any actual games. It was just the console couple of joysticks and the power supply. So I connected everything, plugged it in, put in a cartridge. I think it was, yeah, it was Juno first from the Atari age store, the 2600 version of Juno first, of course, flipped the console up and nothing. Uh, Changed the channel selector and the channel and the TV. Still nothing. I was like, ah, man, I figured, Hey, no big loss. At least I can use this maybe for parts or a decoration or something. But then I remembered I had an Atari 2600 power supply just laying around doing nothing because before I got this telegames unit, I did not have an Atari 2600, just the 7800. And I literally could not give away that power supply. Even at Midwest Gaming Classic, I had this at the Pie Factory podcast table with a label under it saying free and nobody took it. Well, I plugged that into this uh, telegames six switcher that I have. And fired up beautifully. So I am a happy little boy. Probably going to modify that thing with an AV mod. And something also came into mind is that I think I ruined my Mateos cart. What if I accidentally do the same thing to my 7800? 
So, of course, the paranoia in me says, get another 7800. And the justification was that I'm starting to get ready for Midwest Gaming Classic. I'm starting to pack boxes and stuff to load up in the car. And it hits me that, you know, when, when I'm ready to go, I'm going to have to disconnect my 7800 and, and just deal with that. And it's like, wait a minute, why don't I just have a backup so I can just have that at the ready? When I'm ready to go, I can just toss it into a box and boom, done. So same thing. I went on eBay, found a cheap 7800 auction. Didn't really care which version it was because, hey, it's just a backup at this point. I read the description carefully. I contacted the seller, found out it was a unit that did not have an expansion port or a cutout, just like the one that I already had. And the pictures look good. The only thing is I looked carefully at the description. The description said untested, which is usually code for <laughs> buy at your own risk. So I was like, you know what? Let me just put in a bid. It's still low enough price that even if it doesn't work, I could probably use it for parts or something, or maybe I can learn how to repair the thing. So I get it, get it in the mail, and it is packaged beautifully, bubble wrap all over the place, came with a few cartridges uh, that I'll probably send off to Atari Age eventually, plugged it in, fired it up. Once again, works amazingly well. I was so, and not only that, but it looks a lot cleaner and more shiny than my previous Atari 7800. So I me I messaged the seller and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And by the way, both of these consoles, the Telegames console and the 7800 console, some of the packaging material in both of them was plastic store bags, like from Walgreens and uh, Menards and things like that. I know people kind of roll their eyes at using those as stuffing. They don't think it's very good. Well, they, they, they were actually the, uh, the Telegames 2600 was stuffed with nothing but those bags. And it, it was perfect. It came over perfect. But what I was really happy about, I live in Chicago, and Chicago just enacted a $0.07 cents per bag tax. Stores are required to charge you $0.07 cents per bag if you get a bag with your stuff. So basically, if you don't want to be charged $0.07 cents per bag, either provide your own bag or just carry it out yourself with your hands or whatever. And the thing is, I have a dog, which means I have to, well, to put it gently, I have to scoop. And plastic store bags are ideal for scooping. And I know people say, oh, they're bad for the environment. No, they're not. They're recyclable and they're biodegradable. How are they bad for the environment? Okay, the only way I see that they're bad for the environment is that they, t if an empty bag gets loose, the wind carries it, it gets stuck in a tree. And, oh, think about this logic, folks. Sorry to rant, but I just have to let this out. For a while, before the seven cents per bag tax went into effect, the city of Chicago banned plastic bags, well, thin plastic bags for chain stores, like stores owned by corporations. Uh, if it was an independent, you know, mom and pop store, they didn't care, but it was basically for corporately owned stores, like the big grocery store chains and all that. So what they did was they replaced them with thicker plastic bags, like thick, sturdy ones. And the logic behind that was that the thicker bags are heavier and not as likely to get stuck in trees with the wind because of their weight, which at least from my observation, actually, I've, I gotta be honest. I never have seen one of those, one of those thick plastic bags stuck in a tree. But what I don't understand is that when Chicago started charging the seven cents per bag tax, suddenly all the stores reverted to the thin plastic bags. I don't understand that logic. But yeah, I am very thankful to both of those eBay vendors for stuffing the uh, the package with plastic store bags because now we stocked up on more bags. That way we have something to scoop our dog's business for quite a while now. So yeah, so that's been uh, my couple of weeks and uh, it's actually been pretty good. I'm pre pretty good. I've been in a pretty good place this past couple of weeks feeling, feeling pretty good. And um, hey, what else can I say? Oh, you know what? Something else I'm really excited to say. This podcast, the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, now has a Patreon sponsor. So thank you to Jimmy G for your kind donation. And if you wish to also become a Patreon sponsor, please feel free to do so. You go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And what it is is basically a monthly donation I think you can use PayPal. For, I, I support a few podcasts through it, and I, through it myself, and I don't remember if it's if I use a credit card or a PayPal. But um, 
that's how that works. Basically, every month you, it, it'll take out a dollar or however else, however much you designate, and uh, goes over to support the podcast. So anyway, before I go any further in today's episode, there are some things that I failed to address in the previous episode about Junior Pac-Man. First of all, when I was talking about various strategies you can use for Junior Pac-Man, there's one that I didn't talk about, and that is grouping the monsters. And what I mean by that is getting all four of the monsters together in one place. And the reason you want to do that is basically twofold. Number one, if you can get all the monsters on top of each other, then you can gobble up an energizer, and while they're blue, you can get all four of them in one shot. Even more importantly, however, the other reason you want to group is, think about this, you have four monsters in the maze, right, and they're all chasing you. Well, if you get them to group together and kind of stay on top of each other, then instead of four monsters coming at you, you have one group of monsters that you have to avoid all in one little spot. The only thing is I do not know how to do that reliably, so I cannot speak from personal experience. I know there are strategies or some people who have mastered it incredibly well. Um, I know that the different monsters have different patterns in terms of how they attack, but I really just don't know how to manipulate them that way. There are people who do, and I did see a, this is actually a Ms. Pac-Man reference that I found where someone discovered how to group the monsters in Ms. Pac-Man and could rack up a ton of points. But uh, I know from the disclaimers in that article that it takes a lot of practice and a lot of patience. You can't just suddenly start doing it. The other thing that I failed to mention were high scores. I love to acknowledge high scores on video games, both on this podcast and on Pie Factory podcast. Obviously, there are different variations on Junior Pac-Man. So far, I have not seen any records for um, the Easter egg that was mentioned in Episode 6, so I'm only going to talk about records that are associated with the game and its default mode. The highest score I could personally find for Junior Pac-Man set for Fast Speed and Five Lives was from Wilson Oyama. You're going to hear that name a lot during these podcasts. And he scored 411,910. I found that on YouTube. He did that through emulation. For three lives, normal speed, the highest score I could find was <laughs> Wilson Oyama again, 70,020. 70, three lives, normal speed, the Atari Age High Score Club Father's Day edition, as it were. However, the official scorekeeping body of video games, Twin Galaxies, actually does recognize a world record for the Atari 7800 Junior Pac-Man, specifically the Five Lies Fast Mode configuration, and that score was verified April 8, 2016, with a score of 163,550, far, far, far lower than Wilson Oyama. And uh, that world record holder is uh, uh, some... Oh, this guy's probably a jerk. His name is Sean Courtney, it looks like here. Uh, <laughs> looks like he's got a way to go if he wants to catch up to Wilson, though. Um, however, okay, fine, that's my score, and it really does suck in comparison, especially with five lives. Uh, and one thing to say in my defense is that I used an actual Atari 7800. Wilson Oyama used an emulator, so uh, there we go. <laughs> anyway, seriously, congratulations, Wilson. Awesome score there. Awesome. Uh, AKA Oyama family on Atari age, of course. And while I'm at it, I might as well address some follow-up feedback about the Atari 7800 Junior Pac-Man. Those of you who didn't hear the previous episode, Save 2600 on Atari age mentioned, um, he says, and I quote, I know there exists a smaller dot version of Pac-Man collection, but why it's not the standard in the Atari age store is a mystery. Uh, meaning that basically the dots in Bob DiCrescenzo's Pac-Man games tend to be bigger than the dots in the arcade versions. And there actually was a version of Pac-Man collection that did have smaller dots. It looked more like the dots in the arcade version. And Bob actually chimed in on that. He said, I never liked the smaller dot versions of any of the Pac-Man games I did only for the simple fact that you can't quote unquote center the smaller dots in each cell. To me, I'd rather the dots be larger and be centered. It bothers my OCD. And he puts a uh, little grinny face on there. 
To which Save2600 says, oh, I wasn't aware some weren't centered. Thanks for the explanation. That sort of thing would bug my OCD, too, and has a little laughing emoticon. Yeah, the thing is, it would be nice to have something that obsessively arcade perfect because believe me i if i were doing this stuff believe me i would do everything i could and it would probably drive me nuts because i'd never be able to get there and i just end up having several unfinished projects so um thank you for chiming in there both uh save 2600 and to uh pac-man plus bobby crescenzo there so i think that's all i needed to add from the previous episode Oh, and one thing I should talk about is uh, you probably noticed in the last several episodes that I like to use sound effects from the games that I talk about as kind of transitional effects, if you will. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead right now. Obviously, this episode, we're talking about Combat 1990. Well, Combat 1990 doesn't really have that many sound effects. So rather than just keep reusing the same sound effect every time... um, Every time there's a transition, I'm just going to come up with uh, some random sound effects that I find on my hard drive and uh, see how that works out. So uh, hopefully that will be uh, satisfactory to everybody. So, hey, let's get on with the show. I'd like to talk about the situation that kind of surrounded Combat 1990. Combat 1990 was designed and developed by Harry Dodgson, and it was his entry into the Homebrewer Palooza contest. Shaggy the Atarian announced said contest on Atari Age on October 26, 2004, and that announcement was to commemorate the 30th anniversary of when the Atari 7800 was supposed to have its original wide release. Obviously, it only had a limited release in 1984. Very limited. The contest, which was mainly sponsored by the now-defunct StaticGamer.com, was meant to encourage homebrew development on the Atari 7800, because it seemed that the 2600 and the 5200 had a lot of activity in that regard, but it was sparse, if not non-existent, on the 7800 at the time. It was announced that the prizes for the winner would include a rare all-black Proline joystick controller, the winner's game on a cartridge, and the option to have the game made available as cartridges for sale on the Atari Age store. Another, I'm guessing anonymous, Atari Age member donated a DVD of the documentary Once Upon Atari for the prize package. I think Howard Scott Warshaw directed that, didn't he? I guess I could look it up, but hey, who has time in today's economy? So Combat 1990 was entered into the contest, and so was Beef Drop, Frogger, Pac-Man, Qbert, Robot Finds Kitten, Space War 7800, and Tubes, which I think was kind of a Tetris-style game. From what I could tell, it was a really cool game. I'm going to have to see if uh, either the ROM's available or somewhere obscure the cartridge is available. On June 28, 2005, Shaggy the Atarian announced the winner of the contest. The winner was Pac-Man, as programmed by, (gasps) big shock here, Bob DiCrescenzo. And what he did was he hacked Ms. Pac-Man so that the Atari 7800 could have the original Pac-Man. Combat 1990 came in second. Now, I don't want to speak for Harry Dodgson, but if that were me coming in second, I would absolutely not mind coming in second to Bob DiCrescenzo. (laughs) But um, who is Harry Dodgson? Well, let's find out. (laughs) Harry is a pioneer of developing homebrew video games on many consoles. He kind of started on a path toward homebrew development when he was in high school, programming in basic for a computer class using an ASR teletype system with with paper tape, and he would dial into a mainframe at Western Michigan University. I think, if I remember correctly, what they would do is the Western Michigan University mainframe was their main source for doing their programming and storing things, but that was only available during certain hours and certain days. So if they were doing any work outside of that, they would need to store their code on the ASR 33 tape and upload it later. But anyway, Harry's homebrewing began around 1993 with the release of his Atari 7800 monitor cartridge, which he originally programmed on a Rockwell AIM 65 computer. Or is that AIM 65? Eh, I don't know. But you get the point. But the purpose of that cartridge was to basically help people learn how to write programs for the Atari 7800. 
Now, I don't know if this only goes for newer revisions of the monitor cartridge or if it was always part of the monitor cartridge, but at least newer revisions of the monitor cartridge also helped people learn how to program for the Atari 2600. The original releases of the monitor cartridge were programmed based on an outdated Atari 7800 programming guide, if you will, and it was written before the 7800 was even released, meaning that, hey, there were still a lot of bugs, a lot of quirks that uh, even full-time developers didn't know about with that system because it was just so new at the time. So what Harry did to make the actual physical cartridge was to repurpose a hat trick cartridge and um, to spare you the the highly technical details, um, he basically hacked the cartridge board to accept the chips that he burned the monitor cartridge code onto. The label was made out of blue contact paper. The monitor cartridge was eventually tweaked and updated and made available for sale for $99.95 through Video 61. As of now, if you go to the Video 61 page, the monitor cartridge is out of stock, but going by the description on that website, it comes with over 200 pages of official Atari documentation, and you need to use the Atari 2600 keyboard controllers. And if you don't have keyboard controllers, you can use the Star Raiders touchpad or that touchpad controller that came with the Sesame Street games. And according to Video 61's website, the monitor cartridge is the last product for the Atari 7800 that was officially licensed from Atari. Combat 1990 was Harry's only other released title for the Atari 7800, and he developed it solely for the Homebrewer Palooza contest. He never released the ROM file, but the cartridge, as of this recording, is currently available via Video 61 on atarisales.com, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes in case you want to buy a copy of Combat 1990. Most of Harry's homebrew work was actually on the Atari Lynx, which was his favorite home gaming console to develop for because of the fast 6502 variant and, in his words, the, and I quote, fantastic development environment. And I know some of you don't consider the Lynx to be a console because it's a handheld. It's a handheld gaming console, okay? Just roll with it. But anywho, Harry did an Othello game on the Lynx for his wife, and she acted as his primary tester for that title, and the Othello game was released in 1999. Harry also designed the LGSS, the Lynx Gaming Sharing System, which was possibly the first instance of being able to have two portable gaming systems share the same single cartridge. Harry said if he knew there was such a thing as software patents, he could have made a lot of money from Nintendo when the Nintendo DS came out. In addition to other titles for the Atari Lynx, which as far as I can tell have not yet been released, Harry also had his hand in other projects, some of which he contributed a little, some of which he contributed a lot, some of which he did exclusively. Some of the projects include the Quetzalcoatl C cross-compiler for the Commodore 64, um, I don't remember that when I was a Commodore 64, but then again, I didn't program in C yet, so I don't know. I was probably missing out on something amazing. Um, he also worked on stuff for the Neo Geo Pocket Color, Atari 800, Atari ST, and BlackBerry. Yeah, those little, the original smartphone. Or maybe not, I don't know. But as far as I'm concerned, BlackBerry is the original smartphone. Um, in fact, Harry actually wrote a Bejeweled clone for the BlackBerry Playbook before it was even released. And... Uh, he did that so he could get a free one. But nowadays, Harry Dodgson self-publishes ebooks and audiobooks, and I will put an Amazon link to his books in the show notes. Now let's talk about Combat 1990 itself. Obviously, Combat 1990 is based on the Atari 2600 game Combat. Harry Dodgson was a big fan of Combat, which is why he decided that for his entry in Homebrewer Palooza, it was going to be essentially an enhanced version of combat for the 7800. I'm guessing another reason is that Harry was in the military in 1977 when combat came out with the Atari video computer system, as it was called then, and Harry loved the Atari system. The 1990 in the title of Combat 1990 obviously does not refer to the year the game was actually made. I already talked about how it was made in 2004, but according to Harry... 1990 was the year he theoretically could have written Combat 1990 and make it look like a current video game. 
I guess kind of a good comparison to that would be the arcade game Fix-It Felix Jr., which, although it came out in 2012, was made to look like it's from the early 80s, complete with a distressed cabinet that's made to look like it aged. But anyway, let me get back on topic here. If you've never seen or played Combat 1990, I guess probably the best way to describe it is this. Imagine Game 6 of the 2600 Combat, but with the gameplay of Armor Attack, which, by the way, also has an Atari 7800 homebrew and ergo will be discussed on a future episode. The game defaults to two players. It's a competitive mode, however, you cannot destroy the other player. Each individual player has his or her own separate score. You can also play a one-player game by hitting the select button. So it's that's kind of unusual in that for a video game in which the default game is a two-player game and you actually have to manually select a player one game. This is undoubtedly because the original combat was only a two-player game. Player one's tank is kind of a goldenrod color and it's on the left side of the screen and player two's tank is on the right side of the screen. It's kind of a reddish magenta-ish shade, if you will. And your job, simply destroy the enemy tanks before they destroy you. How do you destroy those tanks? You shoot them. How do they destroy you? They shoot you. Quite simple, right? Basically, like if you ram your tank into another tank, you don't get destroyed. The enemy tank doesn't get destroyed, etc. There are black enemy tanks and white enemy tanks. And with single player games, the black and white enemy tanks don't really have much difference at all, just the color. But in two player mode, the black enemy tanks tend to gravitate toward player one on the left and the white enemy tanks tend to gravitate toward player two on the right. Also among the enemies, there's a saucer that shows up from time to time. And when that saucer shows up, the enemy tanks become quite aggressive. They will start to actually target you and seek you out and fire guided missiles in your direction. Destroy the saucer and the enemy tank's shots are no longer guided missiles and they no longer specifically seek you out. They just kind of move around at random. This, by the way, is one reason I say Combat 1990 might be more reminiscent of Armor Attack than, say, the original Combat or the Arcade Tank, as I kind of see the saucer as an equivalent to the helicopter in Armor Attack. You control the tank with a joystick, and you need a fully functioning, ProLine-compatible joystick with two independent fire buttons. Now, even though I took it upon myself to do an Atari 7800 podcast, I... Well, never really knew which button was considered button one and which is considered button number two, but I'll tell you this much. I play Atari 7800 stuff mostly with my Ed Lydon All Play 48 Supreme 78, sometimes with my um, Uber Arcade joystick. And the way that it works on my Ed Lydon is that the outer button fires, the inner button activates a shield. Oh, that's right, you have a shield in Combat 1990. And as with any other game seemingly in which you have a shield, there's a catch. First of all, it's not a permanent shield. It's only up for a few seconds, and it goes away when you fire. And you're also given just a limited use of the shield. You can only use it a few times before it depletes, and you no longer have a shield. Occasionally, there is a bonus item on the screen. I don't really know what it's called, but it kind of looks like a stack of dollar bills, if you will. But if you pick it up, your shield will completely replenish. I mentioned that Combat 1990 is like Game 6 in the 2600 Combat, and there are three reasons I said that. First of all, Combat 1990's field layout is the same as in Combat's Game 6 variations, essentially the same maze. Also, in Combat 1990, your shots will ricochet off walls, just like they do in Combat Game 6, and also like Combat Game 6, I'm sorry, that's bad grammar, also as... In Combat Game 6, your shots do not need to ricochet first in order to kill enemy tanks. You might remember that some variations of combat, your shots have to ricochet first, then they're deadly. But no, in this game, your shots are always deadly to the enemy. Speaking of shots, to your advantage, your shots have a much longer range than those of your enemy's shots. You'd probably be convinced that they're endless until they hit the enemy, actually, but, they're, well, they're not quite that limitless. They still last a pretty freaking long time, which, believe me, is a blessing. You can also have up to two shots on screen at once. I can't think of many games. Most games, when there's a shot limit, you're only allowed one shot on the screen at a time. This is one of the few games I can think of that allows you to have two. 
Uh, in fact, the only other one I can think of is the 2600 Space Invaders if you hold down the reset button when you power up the console. And just as with combat, you control your tank by rotating left and right, and you push up on the joystick to move the tank forward. Combat 1990 has one other feature that might be welcome for fans of the original combat. Hold down on the joystick and your tank will move in reverse. So yeah, you are given five tanks and your first tank comes with a complete shield. And once you lose a tank, your replacement tank only has a partial shield until you replenish. Once you lose five tanks, the game is over. Also, the game apparently has a five-minute limit, and I say apparently because I had read that there is a five-minute limit, but unfortunately, I've never lasted long enough to use it because, well, the game is very challenging, and I, quite frankly, suck at it. Uh, there, aren't many, there aren't many games I don't suck at, actually, but if you like that kind of thing where the rules are simple, but the gameplay itself is deceptively challenging, you'll probably very much enjoy Combat 1990. The scoring in the game is pretty simple. It's 25 points for every tank you destroy and 40 points for destroying the saucer. And by the way, destroying your saucer should be your first priority. Destroy that saucer and it'll make life a lot easier for you in terms of seeking out enemy tanks and destroying them. And uh, basically your own protection too. Because remember, when the saucer is gone, the enemy tanks are just kind of moving around at random. The way I see it, this is the, kind of the way I see it. The saucer is kind of the boss. And when the boss is around, you're going to hurry up and make sure that you look like you're doing your job. So the saucer shows up, the tanks are like, ooh, I better seek out the enemy tank and destroy it. That, that's the way I see it. It's kind of like a boss. I, I didn't ask Harry about this, but if that's what he had in mind, then, man, <laughs> I'm kind of impressed and amused at the same time. And... <laughs> I was debating whether I should actually discuss the history of combat and its origins as the arcade game tank and all the variations of tank, but I decided not to. Well, for one thing, Ferg just re-released his combat episode of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast just fairly recently, and I feel he did a great job of that already. So the way I see it, if you really want to hear the backstory of combat, then I ask you to check out the reissued version of Ferg's combat episode, episode two, I believe. I'll put a direct link to that in the show notes. However, there's one thing I don't remember Ferg mentioning. I might've missed it, but I don't remember him mentioning this. And I just wanted to mention this because I think it's really cool. There are several arcade games in the tank series, and I, I've never seen one of those. Those are all from the 70s, and it's hard. To, I think the only common arcade game from the 70s that I can think of is actually Asteroids. That's not a hard one to find, but the tank ones I've never seen. But one of the games in the tank series was Tank 8, which was an eight-player version of Tank yeah, you think it's pretty insane that, say, you have games like uh, um, Xenophobe or Rampage, which are three-player games. There is an eight-player tank out in the world somewhere. <laughs> the arcade machine itself, it's a stand-up cocktail table kind of thing. Kind of like Atari football, but with eight-players controllers on top of the machine, kind of arranged in a rectangle, a square. It's really cool. I've never seen one in person, but I've seen the pictures, and it looks really, really cool. And you just got to imagine that. Eight people playing, that's $2 a play right there, assuming you have all eight players occupied there. And uh, that was made by Atari, as was the original Tank. But the other reason I wasn't going to go into the history of combat and Tank is, well, as I said, Combat 1990 seems to have the gameplay of Armor Attack, and I'll get into the history of Armor Attack when I get to that episode. Uh, let me put it to you this way. The look and feel of Combat 1990 is that of tank or combat, while the actual play is like that of Armor Attack, as you're in a play field with other tanks that are shooting at you. There's one thing that I noticed happening that I was actually really excited to see. I saw more than one person commenting on the feedback thread asking, hey, where can I get this game? I want to buy it. And at least one person went through and actually bought it. I hope uh, everybody else who commented did the same thing. Seriously, one of the goals in doing this podcast was to have that effect that maybe I could encourage people to invest some uh, some cash into this stuff. So thank you, those of you who are supporting Harry and all the other homebrewers financially. So let me start with Atari.io. Um, let's see. Zontar says Harry Dodgson is a great programmer. He developed the 7,800 monitor cartridge too. Yep. 
Indeed he did. Uh, thank you, uh, Zontar. And we really want to see some more of Harry's work. I'm about to look into that. I, the thing is, I think the Lynx was his specialty, but I don't have a Lynx. And I, and I quite honestly, I don't really think I want one. But let's... Let's see what happens. Uh, there's Trek MD, whose review says, and I quote, Combat 1990 is a homebrew title for the Atari 7800 that won second place at the 2005 StaticGamer.com homebrew contest. The game plays homage to the original combat that was packed with the Atari video computer system between 1977 and 1982. Whereas the original title was a combination of two arcade titles, Tank and Jet Fighter, Combat 1990 only has the tank games and introduces a few changes to the formula. First, the game has both one and two player options, with the latter being a cooperative mode. This is different from the original combat where players fought each other. The tanks are now equipped with shields to help them resist impacts, though these shields are disabled when firing. Shields can be replenished by driving over energy pods. Thank you, that was the term I was looking for. <laughs> energy pods located through the ground. When the game starts, each player has five tanks and the goal is to destroy as many enemy tanks and saucers as possible. The game ends either when all five tanks are lost or when five minutes have passed. If the game ends at five minutes, bonus points are awarded for any remaining tanks and shield energy. I did not know that. Thank you, TrekMD. Combat 1990 seems like a missed opportunity. The game has very plain graphics that do not take advantage of the capabilities of the 7800. Even the never-released Combat 2 or Armor Ambush on the 2600 had nicer graphics than this. The lack of a head-to-head two-player mode is also disappointing, as this was what the original was known for. Game sounds are minimal, but so they were on the original game. Overall, the game can be enjoyed, but it leaves you wanting more. Hey, thank you, TrekMD. And yeah, the two-player mode is not really cooperative. I guess it's cooperative in that you can't actually kill each other, but... Thing is, you have separate scores going on, so it's really it's really competitive, not so much cooperative. And yeah, the graphics are pretty much the same as they are in the 2600, but again, if you look at the number of tanks that are on the screen, you can't really do that on the 2600 without a lot of flicker, so there is some advantage of the 7800 capabilities there. And also, again, this game was developed in a pretty quick time. So there wasn't really a heck of a lot of time to go in and make the most amazing looking game in the world. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It does. It does leave you wanting more. I mean, personally, I would have loved to have seen the jets and the, um, the biplanes. I really love those games in the original combat, but thank you for your comments on there. Trek MD. And if we move over to Atari age gambler, one seventy two says, hi, I own the number one cart. It is really a good game because it was one of the early 7800 homebrews. Harry did a good job. Greetings, Walter. And uh, thank you, Walter, over in Germany. I really, yeah, for what this is, this really is a solid game. I mean, yeah, again, the graphics aren't the greatest in the world, and the sound is minimal, but again, it seems that Harry Dodgson did take advantage of a lot of stuff you could do on the 7800 that you can't do on the 2600. All the tanks on the screen at the same time. And using every direction on the joystick plus both of the fire buttons. And one thing that you got to say, I've seen some uh, some fairly recent homebrews that were, well, quite frankly, pretty ugly and with pretty lousy hit detection. But it seems to me here that Combat 1990 is pretty freaking solid, really. It seems pretty bug-free. The collision detection is spot on. So the programming itself was done very, very well. Harry definitely knows his stuff. And it's definitely more than I could ever be able to do. But um, yeah, this is this it's a fun game. It really, really, it really is. So I just want to talk about my overall opinion on Combat 1990. Now I have to admit, when I first fired up Combat 1990 on my 7800, I was kind of taken aback by the rather primitive graphics. It doesn't look much different from the Atari 2600 Combat. And it has not many sound effects. Like you don't have any like thrust, like, like how in the original combat, you didn't have that constant rumbling. You don't have the sound of your tank thrusting. Basically, the only sounds are in there is when you shoot and when something explodes, like whether it be your tank or an enemy tank or the saucer. And in doing my research, I saw, I did see a couple of posts on Atari Age. It had some brief but harsh words for the game, but 
thing is, I don't really think that's fair. There are a few things you got to keep in mind with Combat 1990. First of all, it's probably the first Atari 7800 homebrew ever release that was built from scratch. Also, the game was made specifically for homebrewer Palooza, so Harry Dodgson was working against some pretty tight deadlines, and you know, let's face it, he probably had higher priorities going on in, with his own life and his job and everything that he didn't have all that time to dedicate to a contest. And remember, back when the Atari 7800 games were first being developed by GCC and those folks, developing games was basically their full-time job. They spent, at the very least, eight hours a day designing, testing, and to the best of their abilities, perfecting the games. A homebrewer, however, keep in mind the word home. They're doing this during their home life and also trying to balance it. Like, case in point, like what I'm doing right now, one of the reasons I'm not a homebrewer is because I'm just too freaking busy. I have two jobs, two podcasts, and I have other interests, and I have a wife and a dog who would like to see me from time to time, so I just don't have that much time to dedicate to learn this stuff. And those who do also have to figure out how to balance their time. And with that limited deadline, then that's a, a lot of sacrifice right there. That's why you see homebrews like, say, maybe Beef Drop and Frenzy. They may take years to develop because of all that. But having said that, just one thing I want to get off my chest is this. Um, for me, if you're a good person, that goes a long way. And after I bought Combat 1990 and fired off some questions to Harry Dodgson, I really felt that I did the right thing by buying Combat 1990. Um, not just because I personally like it, but also just my interactions with him and from what others have told me. Harry is a really nice guy. That's also one reason I've been, for years, I've been generous with the compliments toward Bob DiCrescenzo, because he is a really nice guy, too. And getting the responses from Harry to my questions gave me a lot of understanding for what was done with Combat 1990, why it's the way it is, and why it isn't the way it isn't. Like, for example, I asked, why didn't you include the jets and the biplanes? And he said that rather than add what he calls, and I quote, an assortment of silly options, he wanted to just focus on the look and feel of the tank game and make it stand apart from the look and feel of 2600 games. And he said, he's like, yeah, I had a chance to make it better, to improve it, work on it further after Homebrewer Palooza, but you know what? I'm happy the way it is. But the game itself, well... <laughs> Let me tell you this, when I got my Atari 2600, I was lucky enough that my parents also got me Pac-Man to go along with it. And yeah, I loved Pac-Man in the 2600, and I knew very well that it was almost nothing like the arcade version, but hey, I had a game of Pac-Man that I could play at home. The only other game that I had until, well, for a couple of days at least, was Combat. And let's just say my parents did not get me Pac-Man. That would have meant that I only had Combat. And I would have been pretty annoyed because here I have this really awesome video game system with just a two-player game, which means that if I wanted to play it, I would have to find someone else who would have been willing to play combat with me. And, you know, my brother, like I mentioned before, my brother was 10 years older than me, so he didn't want to just hang around with his little brother. He'd go out with his friends. He had a part-time job, and, you know, he, he had school and everything. But if combat on the 2600, though, had been like combat 1990 and that there was a single player option, I would have loved it. I really would have. And let me put it to you this way. If you are a fan of combat, there are a lot of combat fans out there. I was actually surprised. There are a lot of combat fans out there. And if you like combat, particularly the tank variations, chances are you're also going to be a fan of combat 1990. However, I am not really a combat fan, but I really do enjoy combat 1990. I mean, yeah, the graphics are basic, and there isn't really much in terms of sound, but I found that when I start playing, I really get into it, and I just have to keep challenging myself to reach that elusive five-minute limit. And when I posted on Atari Age and Atari.io asking for feedback, I was like, look, people, you got to take this stuff into consideration, the time limit, that it was a contest, that it's probably the first homebrew ever developed from start to finish. And something else that I realized is that for what this game is and for what the goal of Homebrew Palooza was, this is a really well done game. The graphics look kind of Atari 2600-ish, but something you got to realize, you can have a buttload of tanks on the screen. You can't do that on a 2600 without a lot of flicker. And also, something else that I, that I found in particular that was unique is that for this interpretation of combat, 
all four directions on the joystick are used. And actually, it's an eight-direction stick when you think about it, because you can rotate and move forward or backward at the same time. But all four directions are used, and both individual buttons are used in the game, too. And you also have a game select option, so you have two different variations. I don't believe the difficulty switches make a difference. In fact, there aren't really many Atari 7800 games at all that use the difficulty switches, because usually the options are all on a menu that you control with a joystick. Combat 1990 is available for sale at atarisales.com, which is uh, kind of an online store for Video 61. I will put a link to that in the show notes at homebrew78.fab4it.com. That's F-A-B, the number four, IT.com. As for the cartridge itself, it's really about as homebrew as you can get. The front label and end label are both hand cut and they appear to be like kind of hand printed with a regular printer. The end label is pretty basic. It just has two rows of all capitalized bold sans serif text. The first row says Combat 1990 with a trademark symbol, and the second row says Atari 7800, and there's a registered trademark symbol next to um, Atari, and then just a trademark symbol next to 7800. The front label looks like a typical Atari 7800 cartridge from the late 70s in terms of the color scheme and how the phrase Atari 7800 appears, although the background color is more of a light gray than a silver. The picture on the label is a pretty cool desert scene with the tank in the foreground and a bunch of other tanks and what I think is the saucer in the background. And on the bottom of the graphic are the words programmed by Harry Dodgson. And then below the graphic, there's fine print that has some copyright notices, including copyright 1990 with the copyright symbol Harry Dodgson slash video 61 and Atari sales. The outer box that you get is just a clear plastic molding, kind of similar to what you'd get if you, say, buy a pair of headphones. And instead of a formal manual, what you get is a sheet of 8.5 by 11 inch paper that kind of disguises the manual as a dialogue between you and your master sergeant. Um, I, part, part of me was wondering, okay, is this kind of realistic? But then I remembered, wait a minute, Harry was in the military. He would know. So this is probably realistic. Like the way they talk to each other is probably uh, realistic. But I love the dialogue on that sheet because the dialogue in summary is basically like the uh, the master sergeant trying to convince the soldier that these really old tanks are actually kind of useful. And the soldier's like, okay, sergeant, whatever you say. <laughs> But one thing I should mention, um, in episode six, the previous episode, I mentioned how if the developer posts a ROM file, it's probably safe to assume that the developer doesn't mind you using that ROM to emulate the game, use it on a multi-cart or whatever else have you. But Harry Dodgson has not made the ROM available for public consumption. So any ROM file you see posted anywhere is unauthorized. And in fact, in the thread I posted on Atari Age looking for feedback on Combat 1990, somebody mentioned that if you know where to look, you can find a downloadable ROM for Combat 1990. And Lance from Atari Sales responded to that and said, okay, where can we find this ROM? Because it shouldn't be out there. Uh, We don't want Harry to not get what's due to him. And I would also like to extend that thought here too. I asked that not just with Harry, but any other developer's wishes, any other homebrew developer who doesn't want the ROM out there, please do the right thing and don't spread the ROM around and just really just give the developer the developer's dues. So I guess that's going to do it for Combat 1990. I want to thank you all for listening, so... Thank you for listening. Did you ever notice that people always say, you know, oh, I'd like to thank this person and that person, but they never actually do say, I think. They just say they want to, th- anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So first off, I want to give a big thank you to Harry Dodgson. He was a big help in putting this episode together. Couldn't have done it without him, so thank you, Harry. And I also offer a big thanks to Lance at uh, Video61, available at atarisales.com. Without Lance, this episode wouldn't have happened, so thank you so much, Lance. And by the way, atarisales.com, just as a reminder, that is how you can buy a copy of Combat 1990. A couple of things I just want to say about that is uh, you're going to see a message when you go to that website that Lance was in a pretty nasty car accident. He's He still has a, basically a long road to recovery ahead of him. And uh, my experience with uh, when, when I got this Combat 1990 
from my initial contact to the day I received the cartridge, it was a matter of like three or four days, I think. And uh, I don't even think I mentioned a podcast, so it's not like he said, ooh, this is uh, publicity. I better make it look good. But uh, I had really good service, and I'm very thankful for that. But I just did want to disclaim that, that he's going through a pretty long recovery period. So Lance is having his son help out with the business, and his son is a busy man himself. You know, first things first. So you might want to email Lance at first. There's his email address is at that website. Just say, hey, do you have do you have any copies of Combat 1990 left? And because uh, I do believe he said uh, when I bought my copies, he, I, I actually asked ahead of time just to make sure. And he said, yeah, I have a few left. So I don't know how many a few is. But um, you, you know what's something that, that I was just kind of thrilled to see, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, but there was a message posted from uh, S. Ramirez 2008 who said, who mentioned that he bought a copy of Combat 1990, but he didn't expect to receive it in time to submit feedback for this episode, which is fine. You can submit your feedback for Combat 1990 at a later time. That's no problem. But something he said that you know, kind of wowed me. He said, you're having kind of a Dauber effect here. <laughs> uh, the the you know, Dauber referring to my Atari AG username. And that's kind of parallel to what is known as the Ferg effect. Because it seems that whenever Ferg is about to talk about a particular game on his podcast, suddenly there are a lot of sales of that game. <laughs> and believe me, that kind of was my, well... Yeah, I could. I shouldn't say that was just my attention. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Part of the intention for this podcast was just my own freaking vanity. <laughs> but a good, but a side effect I was really hoping for was that I would have kind of a Ferg effect on the homebrews. And it seems to me, that at least with Combat 1990, that's what's happening. So I'm really thrilled about that, and I hope that effect continues. That people are encouraged to invest some money in these uh, wonderful games. And speaking of Ferg. I also thank Ferg. Ferg himself, he's a busy guy. He's got like a million podcasts and he has a job that has like what I consider to be kind of weird hours. It's not a nine to five job and he, super busy guy. And he's also got a wife and pets who need to see him from time to time. So I offer a very heartfelt thanks to Ferg for taking time out of his busy schedule to help out with this episode. And I also realize that I owe many eternal thanks to one Bob DiCrescenzo, who I said how this episode could not have happened without the help of Harry Dodgson. Well, the previous episode, episode number six, Junior Pac-Man, also could not have happened without Bob DiCrescenzo's help. He was great. He helped. He answered a lot of questions I had and clarified a lot of uh things that weren't clear, I guess. Oh, and speaking of Bob, the next episode, episode eight will be super Pac-Man. It may or may not be broadcast live from the Midwest gaming classic. So keep watching the Facebook page. Keep an eye out on our Twitter account at homebrew 78. And there are podcast threads on Atari age and Atari.io. So keep an eye out on those for details. And I'm also planning to stream a world record attempt on Pac-Man Collection. So basically, keep watching the skies, I guess. And by the way, Episode 9, that's going to be Space Invaders, also a Bob DiCrescenzo game. And Episode 10 will be Crazy Bricks, also a Bob DiCrescenzo game. And both of those episodes are by request. And as always, I welcome email at homebrew seventy eight at fab4it.com. And again, that's F-A-B, and then the number four, and then it.com. So fab4it.com. And what I hate is like, I, I get calls from uh, job recruiters because fab4it.com is just, it's a, it's a domain I have registered and I host a lot of websites off of it. But, and so my personal email address has that domain and I get calls from people all the time, like especially job recruiters, who say, okay, I just want to confirm your email address. It's a uh, Sean Courtney at fab fab for it.com. And I, I just always say, yep, that's right. <laughs> but I welcome the old fashioned text kind of email. And also feel free to send an audio submission. <gasps> Who's going to be the first to have an audio submission. Ooh, time will tell. And as usual, I ask all of you listeners, I ask both of you, please Give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Thank you for listening, everybody. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful 
next couple of weeks. And, oh, I hear my doggy coming in here. Hey, Ruthie. And anyway, uh, thanks to Ferg for taking time out of his busy seg. And thanks to Ferg for taking time out of his busy seg. And thanks to Ferg for taking. And thanks to Ferg to. And thanks to Ferg for taking time out of his busy schedule to help with this episode. It's a booger snot, that's for sure.